Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi there. Hello there, Dr. Uh, uh, Saad. Uh, How are Rish. you, sir? I'm uh, excellent, thank you. And you? Very good, very good. Nice to see you again. The same. I hope I will be more comfortable this time. I'm much more comfortable being the interviewer than the interviewee. Perfect. Uh, uh, I hope my, is my voice coming out uh, okay? Yes, it is. You sound a bit coarse, but I suspect you have been yelling at your students for the last two weeks. Uh, <laughs> no, I've had a very, very bad bronchitis and which I think turned into laryngitis. So my voice is actually now much better. Two, three days ago, you could almost get nothing out of my throat. All right. Well, uh, I hope you a speedy recovery back to full health then. Thank you so much. Uh, if I need to cough, what I'll try to do is just kind of go like this. Is that okay? Sure. <coughs> okay. Let's hope that it the adrenaline stops the coffee. <coughs> Thank you very much. Yes. Uh, welcome, anyway, to Deconstructive Criticism, uh, Dr. Gadzad. Um, it's a pleasure and an honor to uh, talk to you. And I was really looking forward to this chat because I wanted to talk to you about your upbringing uh, and your life in Lebanon and anti-Semitism. But then I found myself quoting you the other week while doing a monologue on the Me Too phenomenon in Sweden. And I had to use your phrase, Munchausen mass hysteria, because there were just no other words appropriate to describe the situation. Yeah, we have right. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm glad that the, the, the term that I've coined has come to use in Sweden, although I regret that it needs to be used. Uh, does it? Would you like me to talk a bit about my uh, background in Lebanon? Uh, well, I thought we'd get to that, but I thought okay. we'd start with uh, you explaining what Munchausen mass hysteria is. Right. So I first wrote about uh, Munchausen syndrome uh, in a medical journal where I was talking about uh, Munchausen syndrome is when an individual feigns a medical 
uh, you know, a condition to garner sympathy and empathy. Munchausen syndrome by proxy is when you take someone who's under your care, typically your biological child, it could be a pet, it could be your elderly parents, and you harm them because then the attention that will be garnered to you, oh, poor you, you're the mother of an ailing child, that's something that is intoxicating to you. So it's a really twisted psychiatric disorder. And as I saw how the social justice warriors consistently navigate through the currency, through the narrative of victimhood, and related sort of the, the, the Trump hysteria and so on, I came to the conclusion that a lot of this Munchausen mechanism was happening on the collective level, that there was a hysteria associated to getting the, the if you like, the ego strokes of being considered a victim, right? So Trump wins. So then people would come on my personal webpage and say things to each other like, well, I am a woman of color who, go, who attends the University of Maine. And now that Trump is one, will I still be safe to go to university because I feel unsafe? Well, just step back and think about it logically. Do you genuinely think that Trump rising to power as much as you like him or dislike him is going to, on a personal level, affect your ability to attend your classes in some little place in Maine? That's a form of Munchausen. I've become a victim. And so the collective hysteria I refer to as collective Munchausen. And in North America, I suppose uh, victimhood culture is uh, frowned upon in larger swaths of society than it is in my country, Sweden, where victimhood ideology is part of state ideology. Yes, but I, I, I regret to inform you that we are doing our best, certainly in Canada, to try to dislodge you from your pedestal as the queen country of victimhood, of, you know, castrated thinking. Uh, and that's, I mean, I say that not to be, not facetiously. I genuinely think that while Sweden has sort of held the, the mantle of many of these, you know, collective dysfunctions, certainly in Canada, we're doing our best to catch up to you. Well, I wish you the best of luck. But uh, if you look at Google Trends at the moment to see where Sweden is at in the Munchausen mass hysteria of Me Too, I'd say you're lagging way behind, my friend. Okay, well, then I will, I will, I will tweet with greater alacrity to Justin Trudeau so that we can close the gap on you guys. Thank you. Or <laughs> if that's your real ambition then. Um, but I wanted to talk to you for real about um, where you come from, because you aren't Canadian by birth. You were born in Lebanon and as a Jew. Uh, yes, Sephardi sir. Jew. Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, so I was Sephardim born... Gamanashim, as I have heard in Israel a few times. <laughs> right. <laughs> We are the Schwarza of the Jews, as they say, right? Yes. Uh, the, the, the quote, black Jews or colored Jews. Uh, of course, there's another term called, some people sort of break down uh, Sephardim into Mizrahi, uh, Mizrahim, which, is, which, which recognizes that, you know, to lump all Jews as sort of being part of the exodus from Spain and Portugal is incorrect because many Jews have been indigenous to the Middle East, to Iraq, to Yemen, to Algeria, to Libya, to Lebanon, to Syria, to Egypt for since time immemorial. And in that sense, they're not truly Sephardim, but they're Mizrahi. They're from Arab, what are considered now Arab lands. Uh, so I come from Lebanon. Uh, all my family was born there, all my siblings. My parents were born in Lebanon. 
So we're Arabic speaking, our ethnicity, our culture, our music, our food is all, you know, Lebanese. Uh, we were part of the last group of remaining Lebanese Jews. And I, what I mean by last group, I probably at the maximum point of the Lebanese community in Lebanon, there might have been maybe 20,000 Jews uh, out of, let's say, a population of a few million, you know, at different points, two, three million. So it was a small community. But in the context of the Middle East, uh, it was one of the only sort of somewhat thriving uh, Jewish communities. Uh, and then as the tension arose in the Middle East, typically between Israel and the Arab states, uh, it would become a bit more difficult and a bit more precarious to be Jewish in Lebanon. Uh, although I don't wish to imply that, you know, institutionalized Jew hatred is only related to Israel because it precedes Israel by 1400 years. So the fact that a lot of people hate Jews in the Middle East has absolutely nothing to do with Israel. But the fact that there was this sort of uh, consistent conflict in that region made it difficult to be Jewish in Arab lands. And so people would leave throughout the 20th century. And we were part of the last doggedly remaining group of Jews. Probably by the time we were there, there might have been, you know, a couple of thousand Jews remaining. Uh, Today, by the way, I think there's something like the order of 40 Jews, uh, but they don't identify themselves openly as Jewish. There is no Jewish community to speak of. And so in 1975, uh, when I was 11, the civil war broke out in Lebanon, and it really is sort of the benchmark by which all brutal butchery is measured by the, the, the incredible butchery that took place in the Lebanese civil war was truly astounding. I was there for that first year literally living How old day to day. You? 11. So I was born in 1964 and we left in 1975. So but you I was were at a conscious age where you could understand and, you know. Oh, completely. I mean, I, fully, absolutely. Uh, now, I think while you realize that at any moment you could be kidnapped and I, mean, I, I would hear the conversations in the house, I knew we had to leave. I knew we were going to potentially be killed and executed. Now, you could be, of course, killed randomly in that just there's endless bombing happening and you could just die without anybody targeting you just as a casualty of war. Uh, for example, snipers were very big in Lebanon. You, you, you sort of, you, you would walk in certain places because you knew that you were less likely to have your head blown off by snipers that were in this building or that building. That's the reality we lived in. So there was this kind of death, but there was the specific uh, danger of you being Jewish at that point. So it was so for dangerous for everybody, but extra dangerous if you were a Jew. Of course, because what, what ended up happening in Lebanon, so there, there were many ways by which you were targeted because of your religion, and not only Jews, but of course, it's the worst for the Jews. So uh, in Lebanon, there is something called an internal ID card. Uh, in Arabic, it's hawiye. It's, it's like, imagine having a passport when you travel abroad, but it's a card that you carry so that if the police stops you, they say, give me your paper, show me your papers. On, the, on that card is written your religion because everything in the Middle East is viewed through the prism of the, the, the tribal nature of which, you know, religion you belong to. Well, maybe we should clarify that to, um, uh, sure. to my listeners, at least, that you are Jewish, uh, but you are not religious. I'm not in the least bit religious. I'm very Jewish in that I identify as belonging to a a, a group of people that have a shared history, a shared culture, a shared religious heritage, even though I might not believe in the the detailed religious narrative, 
So in that sense, I belong to team A in the same way that if I love Manchester City, I hate the guys from Manchester United because I'm affiliated to one group and not the other. Not, not to imply that I hate anybody, but my affiliation is a very earthly one. It's one based on a shared history. So in that sense, I'm very Jewish. Uh, I'm not in the least bit Jewish when it comes to my religious practice, which I suspect, or actually I could confirm, is the case for probably almost every single famous Jew that you could ever consider. Uh, they would all be consider themselves to be very Jewish, but not the least bit religious. And so uh, well, one of the ways by which people were killed early in the civil war when it broke out is that the various militias in Lebanon, and there were endless of them, uh, that were broken typically down by whether they were Muslim or Christian, right? The Jews were sort of just incidental, few of them that we just had to find a way to kill at some point, but it really was between the Christians and the Muslims. Uh, well, they would set up random roadblocks. Now, if you're coming in the car and a, and a Muslim militia group stops you and you were a Maronite, you were a Catholic, it wasn't gonna end up well for you. So they would execute 300 here, then the other guys would retaliate by going into a village killing 800 there. And so a lot of the early killings in the civil war was just endless purging of people based on, you know, a religious identity. Well, if you were Jewish, they weren't going to be many roadblocks you were going to clear, right? And so you, you literally would not want to show yourself on the street where someone who looks exactly like the guys you see today with ISIS, right? I grew up with that stuff. If that guy said, hey, papers. Well, that could be the last interaction I have. And so as, as Lebanese Jews, we realized that, you know, our time was very limited. We were likely to be executed. We knew of others that had been. And, and after the, some Jews that remained in Lebanon were killed, my parents were kidnapped in 1980 by Fatah on one of their return trips to, to Lebanon. And so we left literally in the most precarious ways when you see the Yazidis trying to escape ISIS. Well, this is how we escaped and came to Canada. So uh, when you hear about Jews leaving Malmö in south, south of Sweden now, uh, because that has been a very quiet uh, migration, you might say, I don't think they didn't have to duck sniper fire, although it has become hard to wear a kippah or show a Star of David or... Uh, and. Possibly, I think most of them just don't see a future there. Exactly. And I think what you're saying about Malmo, which, as I understand it, is, of course, is, is a very problematic situation for Jews. You're seeing it in France, right, with the massive exodus of Jews in France. Yeah. There are many, many places in France where you certainly would be hard pressed to demonstrate, uh, you know, a Jewish identity, whether it be by wearing a Star of David, by wearing a kippah. And, and, and uh, I want to mention two quick stories, one from my childhood and one in the current reality in Montreal. Uh, when we got to the airport the day that we left uh, Beirut, uh, we, we at one point cleared the Lebanese airspace and the uh, uh, captain you know, said it out loud to, for the people, we've just now cleared Canadian air, uh, Lebanese airspace. Uh, and... At, I mean, literally at exactly that moment, my mother took out. Now, I can't remember whether it was a Star of David or a high, but I think it was a Star of David. She put it around my neck and she said, now you can wear that 
and not hide your identity anymore. Uh, you know, people don't understand that even though we lived in Lebanon and we were very well integrated, and certainly uh, it's not as though before the war we were walking around every day fearful for our lives. To the contrary, we had a million Muslim friends who were perfectly lovely, many Christian friends. Well, most of them, most of the people in Lebanon were not Jewish, right? Uh, but you always knew that you were a dimmi, you were second-class citizen. Now, a dimmi, for those of you who don't know, is a Quranic concept that when Islam becomes a majority, you know, the, the, the ruling uh, ideology of the land, then people of the book, uh, meaning uh, monotheistic uh, other religions, Christianity, Christians and Jews, could potentially be tolerated. So number one, we could get you to convert to Islam. Number two, we could kill you. But number three, if we decide to be kind and tolerant and merciful, we will tolerate you as long as you live as dhimmis. Now, living as dhimmis throughout the history of Islam didn't always mean that you're, you know, you're severely subjugated. Dhimmitude takes shape in many different forms depending on the ecosystem. So in the case of Lebanon, your dhimmi status was not that some Muslim overlord rang on your door and said, give me the jizya, give me the protection tax. But you knew, don't advertise yourself too much. Don't make too much thing. Live within your uh, modest, right? Put your head down and, right? Now, if people wanted to know whether you're Jewish or not, they could just go to the uh, synagogue on Saturday and know that you're Jewish. So it's not as though it was a hidden secret who is Jewish if they wanted to know. But certainly don't be provocative. You always had to be sniffing the air to know whether it now has become too precarious to be Jewish. And that's what would happen with the, all the exodus throughout the 20th century. So the fact that my mother had the reflex to say, now you could wear a Star of David, shows you that, no, we weren't equal in Lebanon. We were tolerated until we weren't going to be tolerated. Do you still wear it today? I don't. Uh, but no, not for any reason, uh, you know, just I'm not sure, exactly sure. Maybe I lost my interest in wearing jewelry. Who knows? Uh, but I don't. But the second story I was going to tell you was that at my own university in Montreal, Canada, in the 21st century, I've received several communiques from students, in some cases in person, some cases by email, where because they know who I am and so on, will tell me in private that they've taken the decision to no longer wear any Jewish insignia because they're afraid to do so at my university. Yes, well, it's understandable. My parents and grandparents always told me uh, growing up in Sweden that you shouldn't advertise your Jewishness or, you know, flaunt it too much. And that was one of the first taboos I broke when I uh, became a comedian. Uh, I started talking about it and I thought, you know, they're old, they're silly. It's never going to happen here. And lo and behold. So do you, do you, do you ever, would you ever anywhere in Sweden walk around with, I mean, I understand you don't wear a kippa, but let's say I, I gave you a dare, walk for a week in Malmo or some other place, one of those banlieues, one of those neighborhoods, uh, would you, would it genuinely be threatening? Uh, I think there would be, uh some disdain you know like people spitting behind your back maybe calling calling out you and we're not talking snipers yet right uh, so um uh, i think it would wouldn't be a pleasant experience 
but I don't think it would be life-threatening. But then again, I am, uh, as a person, quite contraphobic. Is right. if if something seems dangerous, I usually run towards it. So, <laughs> well, I've been told that I need to. I have a similar penchant in that, not because I seek, not because I have a death wish, but I get engaged because I'm such a dogged uh, lover of the truth that if it puts me in hot water, so be it. But of course, that also takes its toll on you, right? So recently, uh, you know, I've I've mentioned this on a few occasions. Uh, you know, there's been increased security threats on me uh, because of some of the positions I take. Well, as much as you might be courageous and walk around it takes its toll on you. You start, you know, worrying when people come up to you on the street because they recognize you as, you know, happens often with me. I'm always a bit apprehensive. Is this guy a friend like most of the people who approach me or is he going to be the foe yeah. who it takes? And the fact that I even have that calculus is really not a good thing in the 21st century in Montreal, Canada. Yes, and especially not for someone who likes to live honestly and openly, which you have stated is pretty much your life's goal. Exactly right. Yes. So I wanted to go back to Lebanon. Uh, and sure. Because uh, so anti-Semitism in Lebanon, first you had the anti-Semitism that comes from Islam, I guess you could call it, right? But uh, <clears throat> by the time you were born, uh, at least one or two Nazi scientists must have settled in Lebanon, right? Starting to work for the the intelligence services. Uh, I, I'm not sure if there were. Any, I'm not sure if you're being facetious or not. But uh, look, anti-Semitism in the Middle East is imbued in the at the cell level of every social interaction, and and people really can't appreciate what that means because they they've never they they haven't experienced. They don't know what that is, right? Think about the typical Westerner who is 40 years old. Well, his whole life has been a reaffirmation of how ugly racism is and how you shouldn't treat people in a bigoted manner. That's really how you judge the value of someone in the West. Well, imagine now if you live in a society where it is perfectly acceptable to openly and fully exhibit such hatred. Now, again, this doesn't mean that on a day-to-day basis, Everywhere I turned around, there was massive Jew hatred. But you could open and see a soap opera where they're doing the Jewish libel of the matzah ball. I don't know if your viewers know this. Is it worth me explaining it a bit? I I think you should explain it, yes, because uh, there's been quite a controversy here a few years ago that actually came about because they haven't heard about this before. So please explain that libel. What it basically is is that when you're making... uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the, matzah. the various the matzah, you, you get the, you use the blood of non-Jews, typically children, which you woo as the, as the devious hooked nosed Jew to then cut his throat and take the blood from the child to make the matzah. It's at that level of lunacy, right? If it's sunny today in Lebanon and too hot, fucking Jews. If it's colder today, piece of shit Jews. If it, if I'm having sexual problems with my wife, must be probably the Jews that are putting something to cause my impotence in the water. It, uh, there are literally, you could go on a website on the internet where it lists you the conspiracies 
of Jewish animals. Now, what do I mean by that? There is an attack of sharks in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, in a tourist area on the Red Sea. The Egyptian propaganda starts saying that these sharks were trained by the Jews to harm the tourism industry in Egypt. And there are similar stories about evil, diabolical uh, Jewish falcons, Jewish rats. Jewish. So the lunacy is everywhere, right? Politicians will openly state it. The taxi driver will openly state it. That you don't have to engage in uh, filtering because it is perfectly acceptable to, as a matter of fact, the way you insult someone, you fuck, you Jew, right? As a matter of fact, when you, when, 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 when each of those dictators in the Middle East, uh, Gaddafi, Mubarak, as they would fall or as the, the revolt would rise against them, they would typically be called Jews. They would typically put uh, stars of David. It's the worst insult you could give. Now, and that's that the reason a lot of people think Hitler was Jewish. Or, uh, and there were rumors about Ahmadinejad being Jewish, right? Exactly. Yeah. So it, it is a level of, of psychotic, genocidal hatred like you've never seen before. And by the way, it's not only the... The Muslims who who are potentially vile anti-Semites in the Middle East, the Christians can can be just as bad. Now, there could be different reasons for that. One of the possible reasons is that at least I'm I'm offering is that when you are yourself a minority, then what better way to demonstrate to the ruling majority that you're their friend? So if if my Muslim overlord says those fucking Jews as a Christian, am I going to say, how dare you? The Jews are lovely. Look at how much they've brought to science and art and philosophy. Or am I going to say, oh, I hear you, buddy. Fucking Jews, you're right. They're controlling the weather. So it comes at you from a million, uh, you know, directions. I'll give you one great, well, great, one tragic but poignant example. And several of these, by the way, I hope to discuss them in my next uh, forthcoming book. Uh, at one point when I was, I don't remember if I was maybe eight, maybe nine. So, you know, maybe a year or two before the war broke out, I was in class. I went to a non-Jewish school uh, to, to the dismay of my father, who, who could not believe that my mother would be open to sending me to sort of a pluralistic school. Uh, and one day the teacher asked the pupils, you know, what would you like to be when you grow up? And she, she went around the room and polled each person and uh, teacher, when I grow up, I'd like to be a soccer player. I want to be a policeman. I want to be a nurse. And so one kid got up and said, well, when I grow up, I want to be a Jew killer. And the class clapped and raucous laughter and clapping, right? By the way, I have photos of, you know, when you stand in a class picture and I could point you exactly to that guy because that kid's image is seared in my head because here I was an eight or nine year old boy looking at a friend with whom I've played in the schoolyard who just openly, without any uh, sense of shame, said that when he grows up, he wishes to kill me. And the response wasn't one of disgust and, and, and shock. It was, at best, they didn't care or they clapped. It's a small example, but an example of what it is to grow up as a Jew in the Middle East. 
Have you ever um, uh, thought about what the difference is between racism and anti-Semitism? Because when I'm on stage, I usually I have a joke where I say, well, uh, racism is when you hate people from lower races and anti-Semitism is when you hate people from superior races and then <laughs> hopefully well, they laugh. Uh, but, uh, but I think personally that there is a kernel of truth in that because and and that's why they laugh because anti-Semitism is uh, a bit different from other forms of racism, isn't it? So, so I won't speak necessarily about the inferior versus superior thing, uh, but here's what I'll say that might speak to what you're getting at. I think within a lot of people ask, well, you know, where, where does Islamic Jew hatred comes from? Come from? Well, at its basis, I mean, at, literally at day one, it comes from the Jews being the ones who were most resistant to Muhammad's message. So if I tell you I am the final prophet and there is one group that repeatedly says, well, thanks, Muhammad, but no thanks, we're good. Then at one point, it doesn't take a sophisticated clinical psychologist to understand why my ire and hatred is going to turn to the to the group who is systematically rejecting me. So that's, and, and as a matter of fact, on his deathbed, he says, you know, rid, rid Arabia of, of the Jews. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So it doesn't take such a deep psychological analysis to get this. So why but do we then, Jews always turn down the upgrades? <laughs> right. I could go off on that angle, but I'm guessing you're joking. Uh, I am. So the, 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 the other, the other uh, element of why I think the Jew hatred comes from, at least in the Middle East, is imagine if you are consistently told as part of your religious narrative that you are the true believer, you are, I'm talking now about, about an Islamic doctrine. And now you have a very small group of folks who in your holy texts are the lowest of the lows, are the scum of the scum, are the descendants of apes and pigs. And all the stuff 
you could go spend five seconds on Google and confirm whether it's true or not. And no, you can't tell me I misunderstand it because I don't speak Arabic. Arabic is my mother tongue. So all the bullshit of trying to uh, talk away what's in those texts could certainly not work on me, right? So it is there. It's everywhere. It's in the Hadith. It's in the Quran. It's it's, it's, it's there's the it is the zira. word of Allah that we it's are the word working. of Allah. So you so now you're telling me that we are the profoundly superior folks, and these scum, these animals called Jews, are 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 the worst vile creatures, the enemies of Allah, and yet every day I face a consistent incongruity between what my book teaches me and the fact that these bastards are so successful. Yes. How is it that, but I mean, they're vile, they're useless. Then that demonstrates how diabolical they are. How else could you explain that the word of Allah is telling me that these are lowly pigs, descendants of pigs and, and monkeys, and yet I turn around and this little piece of land called Israel is able to withstand the hostility from endless armies? No, they are the devil. And so I think those are two of the, so it's got nothing to do with land argument. It's got nothing. It literally is an existential at the deepest sense. The Jew represents an incongruity between what I've been promised and what I see in my day-to-day life. This proves that he is the devil incarnate. Yes, I believe you're right. My theory on anti-Semitism is that it is, at heart, if you're a true anti-Semite, you are a conspiracy theorist, and you believe in a conspiracy theory that explains everything that is wrong with the world, and the answer is the Jews. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, and I've tried to talk about this sometimes, but it's hard, because when you start talking about people, because people who believe in conspiracy theories they start acting as if though that conspiracy theory is true, just, you know, like uh, people who believe in the patriarchy to a, to a too large an extent, uh, then they become insane and they start acting as if though the conspiracy is true. And that, I think, is uh, part of the problems that I feel uh, I've experienced with antisemitism. And that's from a Swedish perspective. And I could perhaps offer a psychological explanation for why it is so satisfying to have such a simple answer to explain problems in the world, like it's the Jews. So there is this idea that people use. Uh, this comes from the work of a German psychologist and his colleagues. His name is Gerd Gigerenzer. He talks about fast and frugal heuristics, right? Yes. The idea is that human minds have evolved this capacity to engage in quick computational calculus, right? So Does I can allow- catch a ball instead of counting differential equations, I can just move my body in three-dimensional space and adjust my eye angle to the ball, right? Exactly. And so in many cases, fast and frugal heuristics work very well. I mean, imagine if I had to sit there and calculate the statistical probability and all the distributions of every X action I'm going to do. Probably the tiger is going to eat me before I finish my first calculation. So having the capacity to think in a fast way, and fru- by frugal, it means cognitive frugality. You don't spend too much time. It's quick, it's automatic, it's rapid, okay? We well, can call it a rule of thumb. 
in a sense, if you'd like. So let me give you an example, a specific example of a recognition of, a, of such a heuristic. So there's something called the recognition heuristic, which basically says that we often tend to choose things simply on the basis of, the, of that we recognize them. OK, so specific example, if you take a portfolio of companies that you're trying to build a, an investment portfolio from. So you have 80 companies listed and you want to choose what mix of companies should you invest in in terms of a stock portfolio. Well, you could use a very fancy mathematical model that some PhD in pure mathematics at Princeton has come up with, or you could use the following fast and frugal heuristic. Let's simply look at the list of companies and only invest in those that you recognize. Ford, I recognize. Coca-Cola, I recognize. Procter & Gamble, I recognize. Well, it turns out that the fast and frugal heuristic called the recognition heuristic performs as well, if not superior to the incredibly fancy PhD level mathematics model, okay? So now let's bring it back to anti-Semitism. So the world is a very complicated place. There are all sorts of reasons that might explain why I, some guy in Arkansas, is not doing well in life. But that takes a lot of effort. That might even have to force me to look inward to see what, what I am doing or not doing might cause why I afforded this bad lot in life. Or I could say, oh, I've got an explanation. It's the fucking Jews keeping me down. That's quick. That's parsimonious. That is perhaps fully satisfying as an explanation to me. And we get so credit we don't deserve. <laughs> we, we're way more powerful, apparently, than we truly are. So let me let me give, and I'll I'll give you a specific example of that that happened three me three weeks three or four weeks ago to me. So I was uh, slated to speak this past August at a event called the stifling of free speech on university campuses. Did you hear about this this the story? Was this when the CBC says you're a professor of anti-political correctness? And I I saw the headline and I was like, how do you become a professor of anti-political correctness? I want. <laughs> it it I, might have been. There were many media things, but but that could have been it. Yes. So this was an event held at a university, Ryerson University, uh, in August, and the title of the event was "The Stifling of Free Speech on University Campuses." Guess what happened to that event? Got cancelled? Yes, yes. So the irony was perhaps lost. And it was cancelled because all these sort of intellectual terrorists said that Gadsad and Jordan Peterson, and there was another gentleman, Oren Amate, who's Jewish, uh, uh, you know, were specifically to me, but it applied, I think, to all of them. We were white supremacist, anti-Semitic Nazis. I'm a Lebanese Jew. Yes. So in any case, uh, that event was cancelled. There was a fourth panelist that was going to participate at that event. Her name is Faith Goldie. Uh, she's a journalist who has interviewed me when she used to work for The Rebel. She seemed perfectly lovely. I had a very nice interview with her. Uh, she had done some stuff. Uh, she had interviewed some sort of neo-Nazi types, Daily Stormer or whatever it's called. They're like really avowed neo-Nazis uh, when, when the Charlottesville incident had happened. And because of that, some people thought she didn't handle her interview properly. She seemed too sympathetic to them. Frankly, I didn't follow all that stuff, but there was a lot of heat. In other words, a lot of the reasons why she, why, why that event was canceled was because of her perceived divisiveness, okay? So when we decided to hold the event several months later, this past November in Toronto, 
in front of a much larger crowd. So the ones who tried to shut us down ended up only helping us. The organizer, so for anybody who's listening to this, the organizer, who's not me, the one who's putting her money, her effort, it's a private event, decided that she no longer wanted to invite this person. She didn't disinvite her. She was redoing the event and decided that she didn't want that association. She asked us our opinion. We gave it to her, but it was just out of courtesy, but we had nothing to do with the final decision. I'm just showing up to give my own talk. Yes. If you saw the amount of anti-Semitic Jew hatred that I received, which I hate to say demonstrates that many of her fans are indeed neo-Nazis, right? I mean, we're talking of the level, I actually put out a clip, when we win faith, don't worry, we will celebrate using Gatsad as a lampshade. Hmm. Hundreds of those. So what, and then you, you I just, and now I stopped reading them, it's been now several weeks, it's just because you, it's impossible to, to see the depravity of, of humans. You think like, what could drive you to attack the religion that I'm accidentally born into? You think I really had this diabolical Jewish plot to disinvite this person, but I am pretending because of my Jewish treachery that I had that? But that's the level of insanity. So, so it's not just Islam that hates the Jews. It's not just the Middle Eastern Christians that hate the Jews. They're right here next to my house, and I don't even know who they are. Yes, that's what I'm afraid of uh, concerning Sweden as well. I mean, um, the Jews uh, leaving Malmö was kind of a silent sigh. But now uh, I feel for the last uh, six months, uh, people here seem to be talking exit strategies as well. I mean, uh, basically voting with your feet. The problem is, where do you go? Israel. Yes, well, <laughs> for a final stand? For a final stand. You know, it's funny you say this because my wife and I, and again, imagine how regrettable it is that we even have to have that conversation. She said, well, if we had to leave, where would we go? If one day Montreal turns into the next Sweden, and, and I don't doubt that it will, the way things are going. It may not be in five years or in 10 years, but certainly within my lifetime and certainly within my young children's lifetime, where would we go? And I, I was, I was, I mean, I said it almost facetiously, but not really. Argentina, Mexico, Japan, because those cultures, they still have the, if you like, the desire to fight for their cultures, right? Yes. What's happened generally in the West is that to be a progressive Westerner is to self-flagellate about how useless you are and how noble the immigrant who is coming to alter your society is. And to say, I don't want your regressive values. Welcome in if you wish to share in our progressive values, true progressive, true liberalism, not the bullshit stuff, then come in. But I have a right to say, I don't want female genital mutilation. I don't want institutionalized Jew hatred, homophobia. I don't want those things in my culture. Well, that's racist to say that. I suspect that a few societies today Russians, Chinese, Japanese, maybe some strongly Catholic countries might be the last refuge for Jews. Ironically, isn't it? Ironic. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> do you have any advice then for the Jews of Sweden? Any any signs we should look out for? Give give me a sense first. What are the demographic realities? What was the the, the zenith of the Jewish community in Sweden? How many how many Jews were there? And say, give me the the the, the decrease over the last ten years to get a sense of how severe the it's, problem is. It's very hard to say because it was an extremely small community even before the war. Sweden was one of the most homogenous countries in the world. I mean, people rarely talk about why Sweden has become such an efficient and and well-organized society, but uh, the key component was race. Everyone looked the same and had basically the same name. So taking everybody's money as taxes and redistributing the wealth wasn't that hard. It was a family, right? Uh, and, And the Swedish Jewish community was very, very small and very silent. And then, uh, you know, they took in, uh, among other people, my grandparents after the Second World War. And then the Jewish community. What? From where? From uh, Poland, Germany, and the Pale, basically Ukraine, Belarus, that, you know, swath of land between the Baltic and the Black Sea. Uh, And then, um, and then the Jewish community grew here for quite some time, I think. Uh, uh, And the emigration has started in the last 10 years, maybe. Because, you know, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, there came a lot of Russian Jews here, here as well and joined, you know, the congregation. And there was another uh, wave of uh, uh, Polish Jews in 68 when they were kicked out of Poland, the last remaining Jews. Uh, a lot of them came here as well. Um, so and then now Malmö, some of them are moving here to Stockholm. Some of them are trying to get into the States or Canada. But, you know a lot of them are going to Israel. Let me ask you the following next uh, figure, and maybe you can't give it a precise estimate, but you could give a, you know, a ballpark figure. What's the ratio of uh, Muslims to Jews in Sweden right now? <laughs> I think there's uh, between 12 and 16,000 Jews in Sweden and uh, maybe 500,000, 600,000 Muslims. You've answered my question, son. All right. Uh, It's a game of demographics. In other words, uh, look, I I, I give the following uh, analogy. And again, I hate to have to preface this, but let me say it for the idiots who might be watching your show. This is not an attack on individual Muslims. There were Muslims who wanted to kill us in Lebanon, and it was in part Muslims who saved us in Lebanon. So... People come in all varieties. There are very nice Jews and very evil Jews, very nice Muslims, very evil Muslims. We're talking about an ideology and whether the spread of that ideology promotes love for Jews or promotes disdain for Jews. And the analogy I'd like to use here for your listeners and viewers is at the end of every day, based on my caloric intake and my exercise output, only three things could happen to my weight. Literally, there's no other option. That day, I could have put on weight. My weight could exactly remain the same, or I could lose weight. It really is that simple. So when it comes to greater infusion of Islam in a society, only three things could happen. It could get worse on some metric. Nothing could change, or it could get better. So 
the question that I would pose to all your viewers, with the greater infusion of Islam in a society, should Jews think that their plight will overall improve, remain unchanged, or worsen? And we've got 1,400 years of history that could not be any clearer. The existence of gravity is less clear than those stats. Now, this doesn't mean that Jews were being indiscriminately killed all the time everywhere, because what people typically retort is, but then how do you explain my uncle in 15th century Iberian Peninsula who lived very nicely with his Muslim neighbors? So what? He did live nicely until they decided to behead him. You're perfectly healthy until you get a heart attack and die. So the point is, on the aggregate, is the infusion of an ideology that is fully committed to Jew hatred, notwithstanding that many supposed Muslims are perfectly kind to Jews, and most probably are. But does greater Islam in Sweden result in better a lot for Jews? No. So it's a matter of, of time. In 10 years, it's going to get worse. In 50 years, it's going to get worse. In 100 years, all Jews will have magically disappeared of Sweden. Well done, uh, the Godfather. That's positive news. Thank you for sharing them. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll stick around for a few more years just to see what happens, actually. Uh, and also, you know, as a political satirist, Sweden is becoming very interesting. Right. So yes. are, are, are you now I I think last time when we spoke on my show, we talked a bit about Sweden. Uh, are there any hints of people waking up to some of these realities or are we doubling down on the lunacy and the the irrational train is going full throttle? I think both might be true at the same time. I think a lot of uh, people are waking up, but not speaking up. Uh, and then uh, the the people who are in charge now who ascribe to, you know, post-colonialism, intersectionality, uh, gender science, which is what we call it here, um, they are losing their shit, man. <laughs> it's uh, fat-bucking nuts. I, I have no other ways of describing it. The media is in a me-too uh, psychotic uproar. Uh, so are the politicians, uh, the actresses, the singers, everyone. Uh, I think um, because I read up on mass hysterias after, you know, uh, quoting you and, and you know, uh, usually it they come about because of a shared sense of loss of control. Right. And uh, And in this case, it's quite obvious. I mean, a lot of the problems that Sweden will be facing for the coming three decades... Uh, not only don't they have any answer to these problems, uh, they their ideologies don't admit that these things are problems at all. Simply incredible. Uh, but I think you're exactly right what you said about loss of control because their their response is really the realization that they no longer hold the monopolistic control over the narrative. And in a sense, that's what's happening in North American universities right now, right? A few of us who are in positions where we have large platforms are particularly targeted because people listen to us, people really pay attention to what we're saying, and we come out and say, uh, no Canadian senators, there aren't 873 genders. 
And no, the science is not saying that. And so then the transgender activists will come after you because for many, many years, no one stood in my position and said, well, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're saying, I mean, literally bullshit. I mean, it couldn't be more. Now, of course, this has nothing to do with being transphobic, right? I don't have to keep repeating that I am a full supporter of transgender rights, but I'm also an evolutionary scientist who recognizes that humans come with something called sexual dimorphism, meaning they come in two forms that are due to evolutionary forces. And I'm not going to change the fundamentals of evolutionary biology because it is inconsistent with your complete lunacy. So I think what needs to happen is instead of us, because you said earlier, few many people are awake, but few are speaking. What needs to happen for the ship to turn around to give your listeners some optimism is all it takes is for people to rise up and speak. Because the reality is I may receive 1% of really nasty messages, but there are 99% of people who support what I say. But out of those 99%, very few speak. For example, professors, many of them will write to me and say, my God, I've become addicted to listening to you, to reading your stuff. You give me my only link to sanity as I go into my insane job at the university. So, okay, thank you for that nice gratitude. But how about you join the fight? How about you join me publicly and say that? No, because then the chair of their department might get upset or their dean. That's the problem. It's not that 99% of the people are parasitized. It's that 99% of people are parasitized, not but by bad ideas, but by cowardice, right? So rise up. Don't let the tyranny of the minority control the narrative. And we could quickly turn this around. But unfortunately, it falls on deaf ears because most people are so terrified to rock the boat. I mean, I rece- I'll give you, uh, am, I, am I overextending the invitation no, or do we have time? There's no overextension okay. of time here. Okay, thank you. Uh, I received a, 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 me- a message. I, I, I won't give too much, even if I give details, you'd, you'd never know who it is. Uh, uh, someone wrote to me, he's a professor, uh, saying that he was summoned to his dean's office because he tweeted about a thesis, which incidentally, looking quickly at the title, I'm almost certain that I had satirized that exact piece several months ago. It was a thesis, I think, in uh, educational psychology, where it was an autoethnography of my dancing. So this guy, you know, he would dance this way, and this was the patriarchy. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's 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 almost impossible to imagine that this is not just some brilliant satire from Mr. Flam, the Swedish comedian. It's, it's just impossible that that's a thesis, okay? So the dean wrote to him and said, you might want to take this down. Now listen to why. Because the author of that thesis is, can you fill in the blank? Trans. Gay. Gay. Therefore... You as a professor satirizing a public academic document is off bounds potentially because the identity of the producer of this insane bullshit is gay. I mean, what do I, do I need to say anything more? No, no, no uh, not to me at least. Uh, it's obviously wrong that you can't criticize someone's thoughts just because they have a certain preference in bed. Exactly. Yes. And but yet that dean 
felt sufficiently comfortable, sufficiently uh, compelled that he may be on the right side of the issue, that he made that request. And so the gentleman wrote to me and a few others and said, well, what should I do? Please help me. As I, and I receive endless of these, which by the way, takes a tremendous emotional strain on you because you sort of become the, the knight trying to protect everybody everywhere. And that becomes very exhausting. I, I answered very, very quickly. I said, you know, I, I feel for you. Bon courage, good luck. Make sure that at the very least your meeting is taped, right? Because whether whether you tell them that you're taping it or I don't know if it's legal or not, but if you do it uh, uh, duplicitly, if you'd like, uh, make sure that you have a record of it. If you, I don't know if you are you aware of the case of the Laurier T A. Yes, I listened I, to it. It was quite horrible, and I think it's uh, uh, nothing out of the ordinary at any Swedish university. Should anyone write anything similar or show a clip of Jordan Peterson, exactly. or me for that matter? Oh, okay. So you're in that camp. Wow. Yes. Uh, well, incidentally, apparently, I spoke recently to uh, Joran uh, Adamson, who is the apparently the Swedish professor Jordan Peterson of Sweden. Uh, do you know who he is? Uh, yes, I've I've come across him now, and I've actually bought his book, but I haven't had time to read it yet. He's a modernist social democrat of the old sort, I suppose. Right. right. Yes. Uh, well, he came on my show, and I think you'd really enjoy it. You should you should get, take a listen. But anyways, what what made the case of uh, this 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 woman, this young woman, Lord, uh, Lindsay Shepard, uh, so poignant was that she had the smoking gun, right? Yeah. So that when people would come right to me and say, "Oh, come on, but aren't you exaggerating the plight of what goes on here? Isn't it just a few folks and you blowing it?" Which, of course, it's not. It, it is a serious problem. Now, when you listen to Lindsay Shepard, you could no longer say that it's just hyperbolic embellishing, because you're hearing it. You're hearing what seems otherwise impossible to believe. And so, all I told him is, do not go to that meeting if you don't have a record of everything that's said. So we'll see what happens. I'm sure it's going to become probably a big case. We'll see. Yeah, uh, I hope you're right. And uh, you're absolutely right about the taping. I tell people to screen dump everything in case they need proof at a later point in time. Uh, and I want to thank you so much for coming on the Deconstructive Criticism and having a talk with me again, uh, Dr. My Sarah. pleasure. Anytime. Yes. And uh, Git Shabbos. You too. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Ciao. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.